Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita. No, no, Lita. So you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. And in this episode, we're delighted to be talking to Anna Aslanyan. Hello, Anna. Hello. Um, are you? Where are you speaking from? Uh, I'm currently in London. Great. Well, I mean, I'll just say something uh, for the listener. Anna is a, a journalist, a literary translator, a public service interpreter. And she's got a fantastic book out, which I got out of the amazing Leeds Library, which is, I know you probably don't know, but a subscription library. It's been established since about 18, uh, 1760 uh, in Leeds. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful place. But And I saw the book there, in, and it's got in demand on it, so I must give it back very soon. But, Anna, yeah, it'd be lovely to talk about the book, but also more generally about your your work. So um, perhaps, first of all, you could say, I mean, in an average week, not the pandemic. What what kind of work? What's the range of work that you do, or that you, maybe you're, you're doing at the moment? Uh, yeah, I've basically uh, have been doing it, pandemic or not, uh, for the last uh, ten years. Um, so I went freelance, uh, having spent uh, years working in a kind of day job. Uh, so I'm a journalist and translator, and I think I tend to oscillate between these two. Uh, modes and uh, um, reviewing books uh, and writing the occasional uh, pieces in my capacity as a journalist uh, and uh, translating either literary works or uh, technical documents as well as interpreting as a public service interpreter. So that would be the other hat that I have to wear in my professional life. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, to say 50-50 would be uh, kind of an accurate estimate, but it does vary. Sometimes uh, in a week where I have a large translation project, I won't be doing any writing. And when I was working on my book uh, that we are hopefully going to talk about, uh, I did more writing than actually uh, translating things. And I'm glad to be back into this uh, working um, regime where I can do both. Fantastic. Well, um, the book is called Dancing on Ropes, and it's uh, it's. I'm going to ask you to talk about it, but certainly my impression of the book, and I really, really enjoyed it, Anna, is that it's a a, a real a really panoramic kind of uh, take on the art of translation and interpretation uh, and language. This is a programme about language. It's called Love the Words. So it's absolutely appropriate we're talking to you. But could you explain a little about the title Dancing on Ropes? And it's subtitled, um, yeah, it's subtitled Translators and the Balance of History. It seems to be so much about balance. But yes, perhaps you could say more about that title. Uh, yes, of course. And first of all, thanks for your kind words. I'm really glad if you enjoyed the book, uh, whose title is actually, I didn't make it up and I didn't even suggest it was my publisher who did. And it's a quote from uh, John Dryder. 
John Dryden was uh, an author and translator. He lived in the 17th century. Uh, he, he wrote poetry of his own and he translated the classics. And he wrote of translation, uh, it is much like dancing on ropes with fettered legs. Uh, it is an apt metaphor um, for the profession, for the trade, and it's still very valid today. Um, so that was one of the things I wanted to talk about in the book, uh, translation as a balancing act, which is always about finding a space between linguistic gaps, finding some kind of compromise between meanings, and how performing this balancing act is always, always a challenge. And um, the subtitle that you just mentioned uh, is uh, puts the emphasis on the actual translators, on the people who do this, who have been doing this for uh, decades and centuries and millennia, and uh, who spread the word and kept peace and tried to establish communication between uh, people who didn't share a language. And this is... Um, the, a profession that I believe deserves to be known and understood better and uh, hence the idea to share some of the examples, some uh, related to distant past and others to more recent events. Uh, this is what I try to do in the book. Well, it seems to me that there's, there's probably not a more, no more uh, valuable a profession in a way to, to, to make people who speak other languages who are different from us, who are different cultures, intelligible to ourselves and us to them. I mean, that's absolutely crucial to to, to the survival of human life. Would yes, it, of course, it, absolutely. And um, um, can I? Do you mind if I just read a little from the book? Actually, it's it's uh, it's the last it's the last it's the last part of the uh, introduction. So yeah, this idea of a figure dancing on a rope with its joyful as well as sinister connotations is an apt image for the profession to keep everything in balance they constantly move between near impossibilities and the world moves with them i mean that 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 seems to be absolutely right i mean it's so what are the joyful parts of the of the job for you anna well i'd say they are uh, the same uh as the most challenging and the hardest parts <laughs> uh because um as i mentioned in the book and as everyone who ever uh, tried translating them knows it is uh, translation is a bit of a um, you know it's a problem that either doesn't have a solution at all or it has multiple solutions and there's certainly never a, a unique and definitive way of translating things so it's always a challenge just to uh, make sure that people uh, understand each other and uh, make themselves understood um, human communication, even in one language, always comes with a proviso that we actually understand and uh, make ourselves understood much less than we actually hope. So when there are more than uh, one language involved, um, then that becomes almost impossible, uh, which is not to say that we shouldn't be trying to solve that problem. So uh, when I uh, let's talk about maybe interpreting as a as as um, a separate genre, uh, and by interpreting we mean uh, oral translation. Once when you you're doing it live, when there are people speaking and you are interpreting as they go along. So um, 
of course, in on those occasions when I have to interpret, uh, I go into it with uh, the best of intentions. I want to do a sterling job, but I don't necessarily expect to crack it because there are any number of reasons why communication between people might break down. And when I eventually see that the two parties are actually on the same page, so to speak, that always feels like an unexpected bonus. And the, 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 on those crucial uh, occasions when such um, comprehensibility, if you like, and being on the, on the same page is so important for world peace, like it must be so much is at stake. And, we, and there's a whole chapter about the Cold War. Um, but I, I was thinking at the moment in terms of diplomacy with Ukraine, um, and the difference between words like invasion and incursion, you know, there's so much rests on these things. I mean, to say a little, if you would, about the responsibility of, of translators in that kind of situation, particularly in the Cold War. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, you are absolutely right. A number of examples in the book uh, are related to the Cold War, uh, simply because it was so cheer and intense and, and, and difficult period for everyone when uh, the world would find itself on the brink of a catastrophe. And uh, uh, of course, without uh, translation, uh, it would have been completely impossible to resolve the situation. Even with translation, it wasn't. Sometimes it looked as, as if it wasn't going to be uh, possible. But um, uh, where there is a will, there is a way. And ultimately, because uh, the opposing sides didn't really want a, nucle uh, a, a, a catastrophe for the whole world to suffer, they uh, uh, ended up. Uh, making themselves understood and coming to some kind of agreement. So those are all kind of um, old stories uh, that belong to the past, but as you just uh, pointed out quite rightly, uh, history repeats itself and uh, again and again we find ourselves in similar situations. And at the present moment, uh, um, Russia and Ukraine have been in the news and of course there's this threat of uh, war uh, whether it's going to be an incursion or invasion will probably uh, matter very little to people on the receiving end. It'll be horrible, it'll be a tragedy. So, um, and uh, it, translation will be important in this process, but first, before you begin translating, you really have to get the parties to speak to each other, which at the moment doesn't seem to be happening much. Last night, uh, there was a Russian MP on the news interviewed by the BBC. Uh, he spoke uh, serviceable English and he just said, our message to the West is get out. So <laughs> there's not much room for interpretation there. <laughs> Hopefully there will be negotiations and no matter how frustrating that process might be, anything is better than war. So when those negotiations uh, begin, then of course interpreters and translators will play an important role as they have always done in diplomacy. Yes, I, I was just looking back on the chapter about the Cold War uh, and actually, I, it, it, there's that thing of some words when they're translated have a certain connotation in a in a culture that they don't for us. I mean, there's, there's an example in in the in the chapter about the word blockade or blockada, is it in 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 Russian? And that uh, if, when in terms of the uh, in the Cuba crisis, uh, when 
boats were sent out to kind of confront the, the any possible, uh, you know, the Russian boats coming to and 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 the word blockade had that has the association for Russians or did of Leningrad and all that history surrounding it, and yet perhaps wouldn't have that association for us. I mean, that must be a minefield. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, that example uh, you you are referring to that um, uh, the um, Cuban crisis that uh, uh, incidentally is called uh, Caribbean crisis in Russian and it's called <laughs> right. uh, the October crisis in a number of other That's languages because it all happened in October 1962. So that in itself uh, yes. shows how much uh, ambiguity um, of the race and um yes that word uh, uh which sounds kind of similar in russian blockade and uh, it could mean siege or blockade in english uh it does still does have uh, very strong connotations to uh, the russian ear um so again it wasn't something it wasn't an insurmountable problem uh everyone understood what uh the us actually meant when they talked about um, their, the deployment of their weapons in uh, Cuba and uh, what uh, each of the parties wanted to do. Um, so there was a lot of um, kind of nitpicking, I suppose we can call it, but mm. oh, it was completely justified because every single coma in those um, documents could have uh, had and, and did have uh, uh, momentous and absolutely vital uh, consequences to the fate of the world. But uh, importantly, um, translators wouldn't have been able to save the situation completely or change things around completely had the principal parties uh, not wanted uh, the same outcome. So it's important to understand that translation is crucial and it's very uh, important that it can actually change things. Uh, on the other hand, it is a secondary activity after all, so you have to have uh, people talking or writing to each other, if you like. Uh, you have to have the source and the target, and then you have that intermediary in the middle, and uh, the translator there is, and they have to try and uh, give it their all and make sure that the parties understand each other. That's very modest of you as translator not to claim saviour of the world status. Uh, well, I'm kind of, uh, uh, I think I moved through different phases in, in my career, but also in the working on the book, uh, I, I did have uh, a number of um, spectacular, really vivid examples, and one of them is actually mentioned uh, there when in 1945, um, after the uh, end of the uh, Second World War, when the US issued what was known as the Potsdam Declaration, and they essentially uh, were still at war with Japan and that was an ultimatum for Japan to surrender. Uh, and the Japanese uh, Prime Minister made some slightly elusive um, comments which basically meant uh, no comment but well eventually Japan was going to give in. And um, because there is no uh, equivalent uh, of no comment in the Japanese language, what um, they actually said was kind of slightly different. So it could have been translated as, as no comment, but the Americans took it as uh, um, as something, as um, we ignore your words with contempt. Yeah. And that's how they translated it. And 
again, the historians wouldn't say that the fate of Hiroshima was sealed just because of that, but it might or might not have played a part. So, mm-hmm. so when I when I was interviewing people with a lot more experience than I myself have, and I'd ask a very um, experienced diplomatic interpreter, "Have you ever changed the course of history?" And he said, no, I don't think anyone ever has because it's not, it doesn't happen like this. You can't just do it with a stroke of a pen or with a single word. Um, but then he actually read my book and we spoke about it. And he said, well, actually, I've changed my mind now. Uh, I think your book kind of made me change my mind about the translator's ability to actually change the course of events. Fascinating. Well, actually, I, I was reading History Today uh, the uh, just I think it was last month, and uh, in that there's a really interesting article about about uh, the teaching of Japanese to British people, British service people actually, and secret service people in the Second World War. I never knew. I mean, I don't know. If, I, you're probably aware of this, but you know. But apparently, when yeah, when Japan came into the war, no one, very few people could speak Japanese, and people who could were you know interned in in prisoner war camps in Singapore. And places like that. So uh, there were two very, very hastily set up schools at Bletchley and uh, I think in Dulwich somewhere. But uh, it was only a handful, and they built that up from. But again, so because of the importance of being able to read communications codes, decode, and all that sort of stuff. But but Anna, anyway, I, I really wanted to ask you how you how you came into this wonderful um, job that you do. Well, it was. Um... I would say I followed a side street, maybe it would be a good word to use, because um, I didn't actively make a decision to go down that path. So I moved to London from Moscow, where I grew up and I was educated. That was about 20 years ago. I had a, a job uh, which had nothing to do with uh, languages, uh, and I read a lot, uh, lots of books that came out in this country I just swallowed them whole and I was really into uh, that um, and I kind of wanted to I guess I wanted my friends back in Moscow to uh, learn about them because I mean eventually many of them did get translated into Russian but um, I just couldn't wait to share uh, what I just read with them and that's how I got into translation I just thought well this book I really want to translate because that's the only way otherwise I'll just have to retell it to my friends I might as well go and translate it so that was how I started translating books uh, first um, into Russian and then my Russian kind of took a back seat and uh, eventually gave way to English as my primary language of communication. But even now, when I take on a literary project, I, it's um, it comes from a similar impulse. I want to introduce now my English-speaking friends to Russian literature. Uh, there are some books that I admire, and I just want to share uh, those books with those who can't read them in the original. Um, so that was a bit of a sideline, and then interpreting also was and remains uh, a sideline. Uh, so I um, went freelance and I uh, started doing journalism, and um, for a while I was doing things for BBC Russian service, and then I was a um, London correspondent for Radio Free Europe. That's 
the equivalent, the American equivalent of the BBC World Service, um, and they have uh, language uh, services. So they have uh, they broadcast in Russian and other languages. So all the interviews I did initially in my journalistic career, they were they needed to be translated. I mean, it was as much about translation as it was about uh, journalism. Mm. Um, and um, so I had to interpret uh, things for this uh, with the same uh, purpose in mind. Um, and then I took an exam and, uh, in uh, public service interpreting because I thought it would be handy to have this qualification. And I started practicing mainly in legal settings. Um, and that's something I still do. You were asking me earlier about my typical working week. So I will combine this with journalism and writing. It's a handy source of income uh, mm -hmm. as much as anything else. And also, importantly, it's a way of keeping my Russian alive. Yes, there's a bit. Of, there's, a bit there's a passage in the book which I've also found really interesting. That the when you're interpreting doing at, a, at a public uh, at a public event or in a court, for instance, um, you are the face, if you like, or you are the voice of of words that are not yours, but you're 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 mediating to us or to other people and there's a yeah the section of the book which i found intriguing about the conflation that sometimes people make between the, the interpreter and what they are saying the words they are putting out i mean uh, i mean it, it, i'm thinking of particular occasions i mean like in nuremberg for instance going back again to the second world war where translators public interpreters must have had to say the most awful stuff i don't know does that does, could you say a little more about that has that happened to you uh, yes, of course. I mean, it's the bane of uh, any interpreter's life that people confuse you with the actual speaker. And um, it's, I guess, it's human nature again. It's very difficult to um, avoid that confusion. The only way to avoid it uh, when interpreting is to use the first person throughout and just translate the speaker's words as they are. Uh, and always refer to yourself in the third person, as in the interpreter would like to clarify, etc. So ideally, I'd like people to forget about me. I, I just want to be a machine. Sometimes I say as much in as many words, just pretend I'm not here. I'm just a machine. It's not about me. Talk to your interlocutor. So it seems to be a simple premise, but it's amazing how often people either forget about it or just don't want to acknowledge it. I mean, I don't mind being mistaken for an offender or a barrister or a police officer or a crime victim, and all these things have happened to me. So long as it's just an initial mistake, and then you can set things straight. But sometimes people just keep talking to me and not to each other through me, despite my repeated suggestions to treat me as a machine. So that's not going to help matters long. And uh, I guess I just try to sound as impersonal as possible, uh, and sometimes it works well. And sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but usually, when, when things, uh, one thing uh, I've noticed, and it's probably uh, not a very deep observation, but when things go smoothly between the principal speakers, it's fine. Uh, they might still address you rather than each other, but if they like what they hear, they don't so much, they don't seem to mind very much who the good news is coming from. But as long as one of them says something like, I don't know what you mean, or you must be kidding me. And then the other one can easily forget who is actually talking. So it's you, the person who uttered those offending words, who gets all the exasperated looks. Yeah. 
So you must have to soak some of that up. I was I was going to um, also coming back to your translation work. I mean, I I I I wanted to ask you a particular question about poetry. Um, I. I mean, I, 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 I remember at the age of 16 reading War and Peace. Um, and now I just think I'm so grateful for that, for that translation, for that translator who's, who made that, that book accessible to me. I mean, how, how, what, a, what I can't imagine. Well, I can't imagine. I don't want to overstate it. But, you know, it was such a wonderful thing at the age of 16 to discover that and to discover other literature as well. well I think it was probably the first translated book I'd ever read. And what a, one to, what a great one to start with. But I always find with poetry, and I love poetry, I write poetry, I read poetry, that, I, I, you know, I've, I just never know what the translation is like. And I always suspect that, it, that it's compromised. And tell, do, you, do you translate poetry yourself? Oh no, no, I'm I'm just not good enough. I mean, I I admire people who do, and I know a few a few of my colleagues do that, but that's beyond me. And uh, no, I I, I just um, tend to concentrate on prose, which is difficult enough as it is. Yeah. But no, I have never translated poetry, but um, I I do understand what you are talking about, and uh, it's it's first of all, it's great to hear that you. Uh, age 16, you were reading uh, War and Peace, and uh, you were actually aware of it being a translation rather than just a book written in English, which sometimes, um, which is a common mistake people make. And and by the way, just for the record, the actual title uh, of that book in Russian, of uh, Leo Tolstoy's masterpiece, is War and the World. And... Uh, so it is a bit of a mistranslation because in the old orthography in the 19th century when the book was written, uh, peace and uh, world in Russian were different words, but they were spelled. So there was a bit of a, it was an easy mistake to uh, make, to confuse them. And the first English translator made that mistake. And But then again, War and Peace kind of sounds as a catchier title so it, uh, it lived on and now coming uh, back to poetry and um, mm. uh, what you said about uh, well how reliable are those translations and uh, is there a compromise well there probably is if if these people are doing their job well and if, if they are not hung up on accuracy for the sake of it if they give themselves poetic license, and that's what it's for, and if they have to sacrifice some of the accuracy, the better to convey certain features of the original poem, then so much the better, and I take my hat off to them. Yes, and I, I mean, again, I'm coming back to the book, and uh, again, in your introduction, you say the translator's real concern is not words, but sense. Mm. I think that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, because uh, words alone will never be enough. I mean, if you just translate anything, it could be in a, something as simple as a list of ingredients for a, for a, for a dish. Uh, doing it word for word never never works. Typically, you have to understand what they actually meant, what people wanted to express, and then translate sense for sense again as uh, John Dryden famously said in one of his um, works published in the 17th century so uh, words are important but you can't just get the right words and put them in the right order because there is no such thing as uh, 
uh, the right words in the right order. You have to figure out what this source actually meant. Uh, and also uh, think of your audience, because uh, if, uh, let's say, if you're translating a novel written uh, centuries ago for, let's say, 16th century um, readers in France, let's say, and now you're translating it into uh, 21st century English. So do you try and keep it just as it was, or do you try and create a different uh, experience, if you like? So ideally, you'd like to A, understand exactly what the author meant, uh, or the speaker, if you are interpreting, and then you also ideally uh, want to make your listeners understand and feel the same way as the intended, uh, as as the audience or the readership of the original. So that that's that does sound like a, an impossible problem, and uh, uh, I'm happy to admit that it is an impossible problem but that's not going to stop me from trying to solve it <laughs> yes again I, i'm gonna do you mind if i just read the dryden uh quote it's it's wonderful of course. it's much like dancing on ropes this is translation with fettered legs as you said earlier a man may shun a fall by using caution but the gracefulness of motion is not to be expected and when we have said the best of it it is but a foolish task, for no sober man would put himself into a danger for the applause of escaping without breaking his neck. I think mm. that's great, and it does imply, you know, there's so many things you have to think about when you translate, and also when you interpret, presumably you have to do it on the spot. That must be mm. a bit scary. Uh, <laughs> used well, to I suppose, I mean, I guess, um, I, I can't remember I've been scared. Uh, I, I mean, mean you do get a bit of get a a bit of kind of nerves, I guess, mm. if it's a really important assignment okay. or. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's and also you may feel a bit nervous like before your kind of stage entrance, let's say. But um, once you start actually working, especially with interpreting, because you just have to get into your stride, and uh, mercifully you haven't got the time to think about nerves or anything. You just have to press on and <laughs> that's kind of that's that's a difficult thing i guess to um negotiate but uh, it's also a blessing because it means that you you'll just f have to fully concentrate on what you're doing anna we, we're gonna have to to stop quite soon but i just wanted to talk to you about the profession um of, of being a translator uh as a job as as a profession how is it is it would you advise a young person, young people interested in languages, to 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 come into it? What's what's the the, the health situation of the profession mm -hmm. as a whole? Uh, well, first of all, the profession as a whole has different branches and different um, areas. Um, if we talk about uh, public service interpreting, for instance, it's not in the best of shapes. Um, particularly here in the UK, but there has been a talk of uh, improving things. Um, so unfortunately, much of our public services, including interpretation, have uh, recently 
and by recently I mean in the last couple of decades been outsourced and that's that can't be a good thing. Uh, I, I don't believe in uh, uh, outsourcing because public services have to remain public. So so this uh, has never been good for the profession. Then there is um, like the upper echelon of interpretation, conference interpreters who are highly qualified professionals. And uh, as far as I know, uh, their jobs, uh, they remain prestigious and as far as I know, reasonably well paid. Then there is literary translation, it's different again, and again, if it has one thing in common with public service interpreting, is that uh, it has been somewhat undervalued, especially in the Anglophone world, but um, there have been changes in the last uh, 10 years or so. So translators now get more visibility and the recognition their profession deserves, and the fees are slowly but gradually catching up as well, so here is hoping. But uh, if, if you ask whether I'd advise people to go into this, um, I mean, translation is something I really enjoy doing and something I'm reasonably good at, so I'll keep doing it while I can. Uh, if you wanted to get rich and famous really quick, then perhaps other career options might be more suitable. But if you're interested in languages and in human interaction, uh, so basically in life around you, uh, which is multilingual and um, uh, you can never just understand it fully if you only speak one language, then translation will provide insights into both the linguistic side of things and the human uh, side of things. Uh, so we know it's hard and almost impossible to translate things perfectly, but we still uh, we don't lose sleep over well, how feasible is translation and how uh, possible or impossible it is. We, we lose sleep over how to translate a particular word or expression or poem or novel or judgment or joke. And we want to make all these things intelligible, preserving both the letter and the spirit. Uh, to get at its meaning and to make it work. So if that's something you're interested in, then uh, take the plunge and uh, do your level best. That's a fantastic place to finish. So, thank you so much, Anna, for for talking to us. And once again, the book is called Dancing on Ropes, uh, and I guess it's available in all good bookshops. Anna, thank you, Peter. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. Thank a lot. you. Goodbye. Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Inquiry into Climate Change Episode 5 Air You are invisible Till we get As we move through the elements their energy becomes more refined So far we've touched the earth listened to water and played with fire and today we're up in the air where there's less and less to hold on to. 
Air is invisible, ungraspable, but every second of our lives, our bodies are being breathed. 22,000 times every day, without even thinking about it, we take in oxygen molecules and breathe out molecules of carbon dioxide so the plants can photosynthesize, making more oxygen for our next breath. Greenlandic legends were quite often about breath and spirits. Poet Nancy Campbell. I went back to Greenland in the summer. I went for many long walks across the tundra then. I was quite alone and I heard a breathing. A very distinctive breathing and in the wilderness I was actually completely terrified. And it took a few heartbeats before I realized that it was a whale in the fjord below me, which had risen and was breathing out. So you're very alert, I think, when you're on your own in, in the landscape. Every sense heightened. As the earth warms up and cools down, the air around us moves in constantly changing currents. Humans have learnt how to harness the wind to create power and generate electricity that is renewable. We call a collection of windmills a wind farm. In the same way, we have a murmuration of starlings or a charm of finches. I wonder if there might be a more surprising collective noun for windmills. What about an exhalation of windmills? The sigh of satisfaction that we found such a clean and sustainable form of energy. Or perhaps a whisper of windmills, which again speaks of the air in our own bodies, the way words are essentially shaped breath that change the air around them. A whisper can spread like a rumour, a rumour of good news for us and the planet. So the wind speed's probably, I don't know, about five metres per second, six metres per second, something like that. It's what? Oh, metres per second, OK. Maybe 10 or 12 miles per hour? Does that mean more to you? Yes, yeah. I can visualise that. Okay. Yeah. 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 So it's what we'd call a, a gentle breeze. My good friend Annabel Gamage who's been a wind engineer for over 40 years. So here we are, Annabelle, so, standing yeah. not too far distant from a wind farm of uh, how many windmills six. are there? Six, six windmills in Durham. Durham, County, County Durham. Durham. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we've got the six. How tall are they? Those are 70-metre towers. Right. And the blades are... 35 metres long. Yeah, well, they do feel like gentle giants yes. being in the presence of them. I mean, they're them. relatively small compared to the turbines that we're now putting in. They're probably about half the size in terms of the blade lengths. You can see the blades. So these are three-bladed machines. And as they turn, they're connected to the generator. So the rotation of the blades is making electricity, essentially. And so inside the tower, you've got cables and they're going all 
from all the turbines back to the substation there. That's where it connects into the main grid. Uh, so there'll be underground cables coming from, I don't know where the newest pylons are, but anyway, somewhere around there'll be a high voltage grid that we're connecting ah, to. Right. It feels like we're standing here looking up, our heads are looking up, a little bit like the way that you look at a, a beautiful building like a cathedral mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. and it reminds me of the fact that um, our word meteorology mm -hmm. comes from the Greek meteor which actually means things on high things up high okay. so it's really making sense for me of why that should be so okay. and so it's a real beautiful manifestation of that we are looking up to the heavens aren't we <laughs> one of the things about the turbines is that the design is so beautiful I don't know if everyone agrees with that but I, I think I love seeing them in the landscape they have this almost um, spectral calvary quality I'm talking with the poet Colette Bryce about ways of writing about the natural world and her year as poet-in-residence at Newcastle University's Dove Marine Laboratory back in 2012. I don't think of myself particularly as a nature poet or an eco-poet or any of these current labels. I don't even perceive myself as writing very much about the natural world, but on the other hand, of course you do, you know, of course I do. I spend a lot of time out and about in the world and I think it happens in a very organic kind of way and it comes from often close observation leading into unexpected things happening. Uh, that can be a very generative way of writing and I find that particularly thinking back to that residency at the Dove Marine laboratory. I just did a lot of watching. So what took you by surprise there? Everything. <laughs> I just learned a great deal and I learned it from shadowing some of the, the work that was going on conducted by certain scientists there and one of these did involve the wind farm technology. And I very much drew upon what, I, what I'd learned about the impacts of wind energy on the natural world, on the animal world, and also on public health, and how to mitigate these effects going forward. So this was the tension, I suppose, in the whole technology that was under discussion. So some of that came in in an imagistic kind of way to this poem. Turbines in January. A thousand synonyms for wind Make up your song. Those busy arms may juggle any number of rumours going around. Your swish for one. They say it whisks the pull of sleep. That blades cut holes in the cloth of dreams. That shadow flicker makes of the sunniest day a speed frame motion picture. And panes of ice which crystallise on your frozen wings are flung when you turn. One, it was said, had lodged like a glass fin in the roof of a camper van. What's to be done to keep your head in the clouds, your whirling one-track mind? For the wingers and losers, raptors, plovers, gulls, batted to the ground. What's to be done about your foot, electric route beneath an ocean floor, a buzz with armoured creatures, 
charmed by your magnetic aura. Like my brother's distance-defying snaps, where the London eye will rest like a trinket in his palm, or the Tower of Pisa bend to the slightest pressure of an index finger. These turbines could be a row of daffodils, bordering a lawn, signalling the spring, as I reach my hand out into the perspective, pluck one like a stem, raise it to my lips, like a child's seaside windmill on a stick, and blow its earfuls fill and spin. There's two aeroplanes as well, one oh, behind yeah. the other. Are they gliders? I think they're gliders. Yeah, yeah. so they're also using the the wind, the thermals, and the yeah. thermals today. On this beautiful day, it was lovely. It'd be to a be good up day. There. Yeah. yeah. So when you do background noise monitoring, if you've got a lot of trees, all that sort of thing gets taken right. into account and whether the trees are coniferous or deciduous, so are the leaves there all year round oh. or are they only there oh. in, the, right. in the summer? So that's when you're um, monitoring about the conditions that might be acceptable or not to yes, local inhabitants. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a well-designed site should not cause any problems with noise. What sometimes happens is when you first put the site in, everything's fine, and then the turbines start getting a bit older and some of the mechanical bits start getting a bit clunky and and then we've got to make sure that everything's still all right. Similarly, the blades, you've got to keep them clean. Dirty blades can make a bit more noise than clean blades. So what are the other problems that you have to address? So there's also what they call shadow flicker, which is when... So say the sun was a bit lower behind that turbine. If the turbine was rotated so that it was, so it was right in front of the sun, you'd get a weird shadow effect on, in your window every time the blade went round, the rotor went round, and that's called shadow flicker. It's something you can predict quite well because it's to do with what latitude you're at, uh, what time it is but then on top of that you've got obviously if it's not a sunny day it's not going to happen or if it's not windy it's not going to happen but again we can do calculations so if this was a house here we could work out what how many hours a year might it get shadow flicker assuming it has a window pointing towards the turbine we can put sensors on that say oh it's the right wind speed oh it's sunny we're going to shut down until this moment has passed. It's such a lovely word, shadow flicker. <laughs> it's very, it can be very disturbing. I mean, I've, I've witnessed it, and especially if you've got epilepsy or something like that. Yeah. The other things we have to consider are other environmental issues, like with birds and bats. So obviously you'll have heard horror stories of birds being killed by turbines, and sadly, occasionally they are. But again, we do extensive studies before we decide where the turbines are going. Certainly uh, most local birds around here won't be at risk because they know these turbines are here. So a bit like they wouldn't fly into a tree trunk, they wouldn't fly into one of these turbines. But migratory birds don't necessarily know. And if the weather's bad, so if they're coming along and the weather's so bad they can't see them, they're at risk. And especially offshore, that's, that can be a risk. And so we avoid migration routes. We don't want to kill birds, you know, we really don't. And we don't want to, and similarly, bats, again, that's another interesting one. You can be 
pretty sure, depending on the species, that they're probably going to start flying at just before sunset or just after sunrise. So we can curtail the turbines, we can stop them if the wind conditions are right and the weather conditions are right and wait till danger is past, then start them up again. I did have a sense of joy and wonder looking at them, these structures, which I haven't lost. Last week I went uh, on holiday and I'd rented a house in Donegal uh, up on a hill and nowhere in the description had they mentioned that there was a wind farm (laughs) behind the house, which some people might not like, but I was delighted to find it. I was again filled with absolute awe and I was able to go up and and be very close to these turbines. Um, You could approach on foot and the immensity of them. It's, you know, the scale is wondrous for the the tiny human being in their uh, shadow. I have still got this prose piece that I wrote, which has all different kinds of images. It's all stilt walkers in the sea and kind of sci-fi monopeds, things like that none of which ended up in the poem. But in a way, I wrote my way in through all of this image making and then found my way into the images that have ended up in the poem. And I can see now that they are very much about the science and that when you start learning, especially back at that point, because it's obviously a technology that's developed a lot in the years since. But back then, if you looked up wind farm technology, you would be sort of bombarded with an awful lot of protest sites, people blogging about their objections to ones near them, people talking about the public health issues that they perceived, um, people worried about the bird life in these sites, whether onshore or offshore. So that was slightly overwhelming, whereas the kind of really beneficial aspect of this technology, which is huge, you know, in terms of where we find ourselves today, was less to the forefront on the online world. I think it's true, isn't it, that last year, that it was a record year in terms of the quantity of mm-hmm. electricity that was generated mm, by, was, by yeah. wind power and renewables generally, renewables generally yeah. in, in the, the UK. UK. Yeah. But in Europe as well, actually. Didn't they say on Boxing Day, when Storm Bella happens, it actually provided all the electricity? Mm in the UK for, for a few hours yeah, yeah. that's quite remarkable that's amazing. it's amazing yeah, yeah you yeah. know given yeah, when we started I knew from quite an early age that I wanted to be involved in something to do with sustainability and in the late 70s early 80s that was a bit wishy-washy we didn't really know what it meant so I was really lucky to get a job with this little cooperative in Hexham called Northumbrian Energy Workshop and that we installed mainly wind and hydro, some solar, mainly to houses that were off-grid and there were lots of houses in Northumberland at that point that weren't on the grid. You know, we always dreamt that one day we wouldn't be seen as complete freaks for Mm. wanting to generate Mm. electricity from wind. Mm. But I'm not in the business of selling more electricity. I'm in the business of making sure that as much electricity as possible comes from a renewable source, but I would encourage everyone to use less electricity, definitely. Yeah, well, I suppose that comes from those early ideals as well, doesn't it? That still you there. weren't. I'm still doing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs>
you create such beautiful, vivid, worded sound pictures of the offshore wind farm. And I don't know whether it's too far-fetched, but I have this sort of sense that it's kind of acknowledging something about our dependence on its power, how much we need electricity to sustain the lifestyles to which we've become accustomed. I think definitely, you know, that and the problem of human agency, really, in all of this. In a way, the speaker in this poem becomes a giant and plucks the tiny daffodil-sized windmill, which is both an innocent gesture, but also a kind of frightening gesture. So I think there's a lot of that going on about where do we stand? Because we are both, of course, the problem and any attempt at solutions. We embody both, I suppose, in our very problematic relationship with the natural world. The, the difficulty is being overwhelmed, isn't it? And especially with the task that you are currently undertaking of focusing all of your kind of attention to the climate emergency. To be a poet in in such a context and to find that still centre where one can really think through to the poem can be increasingly difficult, um, but not impossible. And we must always believe in that possibility and in the role of poetry within all of our responses to these times. In Our Element is presented by me, Linda France. It's a Sonderbug production with New Writing North in association with Newcastle University and is supported by the Audio Content Fund and Arts Council England. So, to end our investigation of air... I'll leave you with my poem, Mooring. Because there's nothing else to be done, I step outside, breathe into the horizon. Because today there's so little to hold on to, I count the pylons crossing my eyeline. Trace the wires between them, patchworked fields and trees, white windmills on the farthest rise. Because, after all, I'm here, I breathe in the wide expanse, feel my body realign, tissue and bone, all the precious nothing. Everything I can set my heart on, the back and forth of air, a rope braided between being. Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents. Love the words from ELFM. And I'm the